Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Andy Mills-Brown. Andy is the CEO of Talent Artistic Group, an award-winning theatrical show producer and live entertainment booking agency. Andy, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's program. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure having you join us. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to first and foremost establish your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside to begin with and just explore that in a little bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and what a leader should be in your eyes. Okay, I think well, leadership takes many guises and many forms, and I think lots of different managers and leaders are very different types of people. Leadership for me is all about um, inspiring people to work through the business and inspiring them to do their absolute best. I think it's certainly about taking people with you on a journey as opposed to telling them what they should be doing or how they should be thinking. I think for me, um, to lead uh, a team of people as I do, it's all about taking on their thoughts and their their views and, and their viewpoints, which are very different to my own quite often, and making them fit together within the organization so that we can take the organization and the people within the organization to the best place. So I think, moreover, it's about um, taking people on the journey with you as opposed to, um, to making things happen um, on your say-so. Mm. It's a very inclusive form of leadership, isn't it? It's encouraging people to have their voices heard and empowering them to get involved. And I think that's quite important because um, that sort of more draconian style of leadership, um, if you will, where sort of you're constantly over someone's shoulder telling them what to do. I mean, if they're constantly being sort of drip fed the details as to what they should be doing, it's almost as if they're not going to try things for themselves and learn anything. And of course, that practical experience of trying things, learning, maybe making one or two mistakes along the way and then embracing them as learning opportunities. I mean, that is incredibly important within leadership, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really important in leadership is to embrace the fact that sometimes in the organisation or within the business, um, people are not just proving to the business what they can do, but they're proving to themselves what they can do. And um, what's really exciting about leading such um, a large group of people is so many different people um, come into the business um, and don't necessarily believe they can do something. And then they're absolutely delighted when they can. But you've got to embrace that environment where you let them make mistakes, where you let them make their own decisions. And uh, you're absolutely right. The draconian style of management, uh, as opposed to leadership, um, is a bit outdated now, really. And I don't think you engage uh, your team well enough to keep them within the industry or the business. Um, And I think very much uh, the good leaders of today are people that inspire people to do their absolute best. But also, I think uh, very much, I've had some great people that have worked for me. And good leaders have to accept that good people move on too. Um, And I think you need to be able to embrace that. I've had people that have moved into consultancy roles, have started their own businesses. And I think part of being a good leader, certainly for the wider industry that you're in, is to embrace the fact that people need to do what they want to do and they need to make their own choices. Um, And inevitably, it comes back um, to congratulate you when they ask for support or help um, later on the line. And there's nothing better than sitting back and watching people succeed, whether that's in your own organization where they started or whether when they're doing something new. So absolutely. 
And I think it's fair to say that when it comes to learning, the COVID-19 pandemic that's ongoing at the moment has been one of business's greatest learning curves, particularly in our time. It's forced the hand um, of business to, of course, innovate and adapt in order to get through this period. Um, for yourselves, of course, working within sort of the uh, the culture sector, if you will, within entertainment booking, within theatrical show producing, how has it been navigating this uh, pandemic so far? I can imagine the challenges have been huge for you. Yes. I mean, let's be truthful. When it first started, certainly in my industry, um, it was uh, a very dark time. Um, it's, we, we learn things every day, myself included. Every day is a learning day. Um, it was dark. It was a very, very um, particularly troublesome time. I didn't quite know if we were going to come out the other side. I didn't know what clients we were going to have coming out the other side or even if we'd survive. Um, everything stopped overnight. And I think um, when you talk about challenges, it's probably the biggest challenge I've ever faced as a leader in terms of how you lead a workforce through um, very, very troubled waters uh, without being able to promise that you're going to come out the other side. Um, I think what I have found is transparency is always the key, to be as honest and transparent as possible. Uh, Myself and my team, um, we battled through, we've worked probably harder during COVID than we ever have. And I think that's because in the back of our mind, the leadership team are very aware that we may have to adapt the business drastically um, to keep the business going. Um, we're very lucky now coming out the other side of it that some of the innovations and um, implementations that we put in place have worked nicely and things are starting to come out the other side. However, um, it's not without um, it's not without some, some areas that we've had to um, adapt the business with. Uh, financing, obviously, that was particularly difficult. We've um, taken advantage of the Seabills loan um, that the government have um, dealt with. And we've also had to make some redundancies, sadly. But I think uh, the business um, and the leads I've got in the business have worked remarkably well. I think lots of things um, as a as a leader that I was not necessarily anti, but a little bit um, apprehensive about working from home. Well, if anything, COVID has proved that you can work um, with a workforce at home as effectively, if not more so, actually, than working from the office. So moving forward, that certainly changed the way I look at things. Um, which is exciting because if you talk now about internationally and how the business can grow, there's a lot less um, cause for concern on my part that we can grow the business internationally and still have a cohesive team. Zoom and Teams and all of those um, um, technologically-led functions have been brilliant for us. Um, I think it's in live entertainment, obviously, um, it's been extremely challenging. We've had lots and lots of people at home who should be on stages um, in theme parks on cruise ship stages, in holiday parks. They've been doing nothing. It's starting to come back round now. Um, I think as a leadership team, we've tried our hardest to keep those people engaged. A lot of them self-employed with us. Um, so dancers and singers, we've been paying them mobile telephone bills as goodwill gestures, really, to, to, keep them, uh, to keep their spirits up. We've been doing a lot of things to engage them, to make sure that their mental health is in check. So I think lots of things COVID has taught us it's taught us that um, you need finance um, and you have to have um, a good relationship with your bank to get that. Um, you need to be able to embrace uh, technology to communicate. And I think you absolutely need to um, have a big tick next to the mental health and well-being of all of your team, staff, employees and leaders. Because if nothing else, it's certainly, um, it certainly tested a lot of my leaders who are parents. I don't think any of them signed up to be teachers necessarily. Um, that's been a little bit stressful for them. I think for me, I've had a bit of um, 
lockdown blues in terms of I'm usually all over the world traveling um, and I obviously haven't been. So that's been a bit testing. So I think we've learned things on all different levels. Um, and uh, much it's strange to say, um, I'm actually quite glad of COVID. It's brought a whole new dimension to the way I work, to the way we work and to what the future will hold. So I think now we're coming out of it. Um, it feels like it was an important time for us, um, as probably lots of businesses felt. And do you think that in the live events industry in particular, that some of the features of the lockdown period, such as that move toward sort of online delivery, could end up being a permanent way that the sector operates? Or do you expect things to kind of revert almost to normal in that sense? Hey, I think um, in ter- I, I, it's twofold really for me, I guess. Um, what we deal with in entertainment and live form is about an experience as much as anything. And I don't think you can recreate the experience of watching um, a theatrical um, presentation on Zoom. It's just not the same as going to the theatre. It's not the same as being on a cruise ship watching live entertainment. Um, I'm not saying there's anything bad about it, but I'm saying that um, I think it's important to have a blend of both. I think um, you can't grasp what a theatrical production is trying to give the audience through a screen, um, nor do I think um, people want to do that. I think, if anything, COVID has taught us that to an extent, everybody's a little bit Netflixed out, a little bit um, out of their comfort zone and a little bit wanting to get back into the to the normality of meeting people, experiencing theatres, experiencing cruise ships, experiencing theme parks and experiencing the live entertainment element um, and what that does for their children as much as anything. So I think um, I'm not anti at all. I think it served a purpose and I think um, everybody quite rightly um, needed to do something to keep a, their mental health well and also to keep arts in the forefront. Fortunately, now we've had some funding and big venues are getting funding from the government, which is super news. But I do think um, that uh, I think to revert back um, is absolutely needed because of the experience behind it. The live entertainment, there's nothing quite like it if it's not live. Um, that said, I think it's um, given us some um, places to explore in terms of what we can do and how it can complement each other. I think now live entertainment and online presentations may be able to complement each other a little bit more than they did previously. But I still do think that live entertainment has a very, very big place um, in the new world. Of course, because as human beings, as you rightfully say, we are very much social creatures. And I think we've taken that sort of human interaction side of things for granted pre-pandemic. But as well as that, with the importance of mental health and well-being um, being at the forefront of the mind during this time as well, I think we are going to value that human interaction a lot more. So there is always going to be a place for that, um, of course, under the uh, the strictest safety guidelines. Um, thinking about the, the future now and what the new normal could well bring with it over the course of the next 12 to 18 months in particular, what do you think is on the horizon, Andy, for yourself and Full Talent Artistic Group? And what do you really hope to achieve as a company? Um, I think um, it's an exciting time. I think we've had to delve into areas of live entertainment and entertainment production that we weren't necessarily um, involved with before, which is exciting. Everything that you can learn, which is new, is great news. Um, I've reached out personally on a lot of levels to various different CEOs and MDs across the world. We've all felt the struggle, and I think that's um, enabled us to come together um, somewhat. So we've uh, very recently partnered up with um, another company in America called Zoe, Zoe Tyler International. So I think a lot of collaborative work is going to happen going forward. I think that's um, more because people are embracing the fact that um, we are one industry and we need to work together. But also, I think the world's become slightly smaller. 
um, because of lockdown and because of COVID and a position where the entire world is in the same um, place has enabled us all to, to feel and empathize with each other, no matter whether you're in the UK or the USA or the UAE. Um, so I think there's going to be more collaborative work. I think there's going to be some exciting um, innovations. So we've seen a lot of uh, drive-in movies happening recently. I think that's um, moving on now to drive-in theatrical performances. I'm not sure where pantomime is going to end up this year uh, with uh, many of the live um, the live entertainment venues closing or potentially not being open. So I think we could see some drive-in pantomimes. Um, I think... It's a case of blending it all together. I think the world's become a bit smaller. The collaborative workforce will work better together. And I think everyone's going to end up with in a better place. I think it's the wood for the trees at the moment. And I think it's a bit of short-term pain for a longer-term gain. But certainly, I think um, competitors who uh, were potentially competitors before are, are maybe more allies now. I think um, I've had a lot of phone calls with a lot of people and we've all been helping each other out, which is a really nice place to be. It's um, vitally important that as an industry, we keep the wheels turning and we embrace and support each other across the globe. Um, and I think there's some big leaders that have, have really led the way in how we should do that. Um, so I, for me, I think the future looks exciting. I think we have to come out of the doldrums. Uh, we have to move forward. We have to embrace technology. We have to work together. And we have to realize that um, as an industry, um, there's absolutely no way we can let this affect us. We have to come back stronger, more powerful, and give the audiences what they want, which is something exciting, something new, and something experiential. I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, Andy. So it is going to be exciting times uh, for the sector, um, even amid all the uncertainty. And, you know, given how informative it's been having you join us on the programme uh, today, I think it would be great to catch up in the next year and have you back on with us just to see where things are at at that point in time, see what's going on behind the scenes at Talent Artistic Group, and also just assess what state the industry is in at that point and what this new normal is really shaping up to be like. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I think um, there's nothing more I'd like than to come back in seven months and say that all of the things we've put into place are happening um and um the way that my team are so passionate about it i believe they will so yeah i'd absolutely love to let's really hope there's some positive news to uh, to share on that front um andy for sure um it's been a real pleasure having you join us on uh, today's program thank you once again uh, for your time and most importantly do take care and do stay safe with all still going on at the moment because there are still one or two variables in this whether there'll be a second spike of course we don't know that so let's keep our fingers crossed that the trajectory is going to be wholly upward from this point a hundred percent absolutely thank you so much that was Andy Mills-Brown speaking, CEO of Talent Artistic Group. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. During his political career, Lord Blunkett in fact rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way I, i'm not sentimental about this things will revert mm -hmm. but actually i think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much... If I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters, but I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.